the idea is really to try to bring people together. But it, it is hard because uh, not only do I do politics, but I do it in a clean way. So that's, that's also going to narrow you. I do family-friendly comedy that's, that's uh, clean, but also then to do politics where people are generally pretty upset. So I am the man in the middle, but it's very important to understand that I'm trying to reconcile between liberals and conservatives and Republicans and Democrats. I'm not trying to reconcile between Trump supporters and, and Trump detractors because I make no bones about the fact that I do not like the president at all. And I think that people who support him are wrong. That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Samir Kalra talks with self-described funny Indian Rajiv Satyal about the intersection of family-friendly stand-up comedy and the sometimes not-so-family-friendly state of U.S. politics. Hope you enjoy it. We have a very special guest with us, Rajiv Satyal, otherwise known as the Funny Indian, who's joining us to talk a little bit about comedy and politics here in the U.S. and in India. So welcome, so welcome, uh, Rajiv, and thanks so much for joining us today. Namaskar, Samir. Thanks for having me on. This is great. Appreciate the time. Great. So Rajiv, we've been uh, working together now um, with the Hindu American Foundation and having you at our events for several years now. Um, you know, can you just talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you've kind of gotten into comedy um, and what your experiences have been both with more of a broader audience, but also kind of at specifically events that are Indian American or Hindu American audiences and what those experiences have been like? Yeah, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, or like I say, I'm Hindu, so I was reborn in Cincinnati, Ohio, <laughs> and I spent 30 years of my life there. I moved to Los Angeles in 2006, so I just gave away my age, but that's totally fine by me, and I've been in Los Angeles, California for 13 years. That's basically my life, and I performed around the world, uh, all over India, all over America and enjoyed diverse audiences. I started off performing for a lot of, especially white audiences, being from Ohio and a suburb of Ohio at that. And, you know, that said, most of my uh, livelihood comes from the Desi community, especially Indian Americans, especially Hindu Indian Americans. And so, you know, I have to give a real shout out to all of the support and love I've received really since I went full time in 06. Okay. And you find, um, I mean, obviously your material would be a little bit different is more tailored towards that audience. Uh, but you find a different reception that you're getting from the community in terms of how they view you as, you know, quote unquote, one of their own. Um, or do you find that you're getting, you know, pretty much the same reception across the board? I think in terms of reception, amount of laughter, et cetera, is probably the same. I think the material changes, not in terms of the, the opinions I may have, but what I can share. So I have a whole chunk about the times I've visited India and almost none of that can I do in a general market crowd. And the reason that is, is because India, I, I played the viola for years. I'm so cool. I was in the orchestra, as I like to call it. And, you know, with musical notes, there's a half step, at least on the Western scale. I don't know the Indian scale as much, but on the Western scale, you've got a half note and a whole note and a half step and a, and a full step. And I always think of Europe as a half step away from the United States. And you kind of get it. It's, but Canada is probably like a quarter step. You get there, you're like, okay, it is a different country, but it's basically the 51st state. You could tell anybody I said that. My wife was born in Canada. She hates when I say that. <laughs> and 
there's that aspect in Europe. You can kind of explain to people. I think India is such a whole step away from America and the sensory overload that you experience. It's so difficult to describe in words. I have never heard anyone describe it accurately in words, either in terms of writing or in terms of uh, oral. Whereas you need a video or at least an audio to be able to convey that. And so I honestly think visuals to, to be able to get that across. But maybe if you had audio with all the street noise and everything else in the background, you could start to convey it. But that said, I think there's a lot that happens in India that I'm able to explain or actually relate to an Indian American audience that will really resonate with them in a way that it won't with other people. Does that also go to, you know, this whole concept of, hey, you know, we can make fun of ourselves, but if it's an outsider that's making fun of us, hey, that's maybe some of those topics are a little bit off limits or maybe it's not done in the same manner, right? Because we may have all grown up with some of these, you know, preconceived notions or with some of these experiences. So we can laugh about it. And it's like the insider laughing at ourselves about something as opposed to an outsider laughing at us where it may be perceived or looked at as different. There's that aspect, Samir, and also two other things. One is when I first started out in Cincinnati, Ohio, I had an auntie come up to me, uh, Miss uh, Sondi auntie, Mrs. Sondi auntie, you'll remember this auntie if you're reading this or, or, or listening to it, I should say, where, you know, she pinched my cheek. She was one of those pinchy, cheeky aunties. And she goes, Beta, you're giving away all of our secrets. You know, and that was the first time I heard somebody say that. And then I've heard that a few times after that. So if it's an all brown crowd, all Hindu crowd, all Indian crowd, there's and you're locked in a room, it's sort of different versus even if there are one or two white folks that are black folks there, et cetera. And you're kind of like, whoa, is this okay to say in front of other people? Because these are the sorts of things that we do on our own. So if you put a positive spin on it, it's okay. But if you're just talking about it straight up, it feels a little bit alien, A. And then B... Indians are not self-deprecating. It is not part of the Indian culture from a humor standpoint to be self-deprecating. It is, it is outside of the realm. And so, and I say realm, it's very British. It's very American. It's that sort of a thing. But to say something negative about yourself or other folks in front of people, it's almost like the Japanese culture in terms of saving face. That is something that Indian audiences have had to get used to. And they've only done it through... Uh, listening to various comedians because Russell is not self-deprecating at all. And, and that only reinforced that culture of we don't do that sort of thing. And then even Aziz really is not all that self-deprecating either. He's got kind of that cocky persona on stage. So it is almost like you see these comedians come out of the culture that reinforce that. And then you have the folks that come up and are a little more self-deprecating. It is more of a challenge. So I think that's the other side of why it is difficult sometimes. And talking about all brown audiences, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming your all brown audiences here in the U.S. are much different than your all brown audiences in India. And I know you've been doing tours in India now, I think since 2012, if I'm not mistaken. 2009. With the MHI. Oh, 2009. Okay. Uh, 2012 is when the State Department yeah. actually funded you guys to do what you were doing. Um, but so since 2009, I mean, that's a decade. Um, and I'm sure you've seen some evolution there also and how uh, the, the comedy scene is there. But just in general, can you talk a little bit about maybe what are the differences in, in comedy and how audiences perceive things in India versus here? I'd say that the Hinglish aspect is huge. One could not really discuss comedy in India without talking about the fact 
that most of the comedians do their acts in English, which is a blend of Hindi and English, which most people listening to this will understand, but just to unpack that a little bit. And I actually do a bit about this, not to turn this into a comedy routine right now, but <laughs> the idea of saying that over there, like I don't speak Hindi, it's my greatest shame. I understand it. My mom grew up in Allahabad. So when I say that in front of an Indian American audience, they gasp <laughs> and they're just going, how in the world do you not speak Hindi? That's like the top shelf version of Hindi that exists. And I will say, and you've heard me say this at Hindu American Foundation events before, that I was born in the United States before 1984. And that's my own marker that I've noticed that people that were born in this country before 84 really don't speak mother tongues or Hindi or anything else. Born after 84, because at that time it was the, the, assim- the mantra was assimilation. And after 84, it was more like, okay, let's hold on to our culture as well. And so you'll have these kids who are speaking Punjabi, Gujarati, Marathi, and these are only the Tamil kids, right? So you yeah. have people who are, they're very <laughs> smart down there. So you have all these sorts of things that, that are different for, for them. So when I go over there, you know, I, I, I do the joke about how, do you have any idea? Because they do the, the setup of the joke in English. They do the punchline in Hindi. So do you have any idea how frustrating it is as a comedian <laughs> not to understand what happens in any of these jokes, right? I, I, to me, it just sounds like three guys walk into a bar, fit, and that's kind of it. Like I have to go hang out with the guys at the bar at the restaurant afterwards to, to understand what the rest of the story was or the joke was. So that's a big thing. Now, what's happening in India is there really was no stand-up before 2009. And in these last 10 years, you are having the regionalization of it, right? Just like you're having here where... My parents, when I first got to this country, my mom was friends with the Asmin auntie, who was Muslim, friends with the Raji auntie, Subramaniam, who's South Indian. Now these people coming over here have their options to have a Gujarati Samaj, the Punjabi yeah. people, the Marathi people. It's very fragmented. It used to just be a mela, and it was literally yeah. a mela. It was just thousands and thousands of people, and those events don't exist as much as they used to before. So you're seeing the fragmentation of comedians doing their acts in English, in Hindi, in Marathi, in Punjabi, etc. So... I think the language aspect there is the first thing that has to be addressed. Okay. But you found that, I mean, your comedy has been well received there. Um, obviously if they keep inviting you back and you keep going back. Um, and so, I mean, uh, what type of material do you use there? I mean, here, I know a lot of it is, you know, you actually going back to India and some of your funny experiences going to India or as an Indian American, uh, what type of material do you normally use when you're actually in India speaking to purely Indian audience? So that's a great question. The chunk there still works because you're talking about being in India. And so the alien eye, aspect of it is really what lands it for people because mm-hmm. you know you're not going to get as big of a laugh as somebody doing an act in hindi to a hindi primarily hindi speaking audience of course you're not because that's going to be their native tongue because we've seen indian comedians from india come and perform at like desi comedy fest and some of the ones where almost all the other comedians are indian american they're abcds so to speak and i use that as a as a positive term just like i use fab i use it as a term of endearment some people don't <laughs> love that term but I, I don't mean it insultingly so you have these abcd comedians who are doing our stuff you know have somebody from india with a thick accent talking about being from bombay the audience will laugh and applaud and, and take it in but it's much harder it's not going to be as hard as laughing at someone who or laughing with someone who was born and brought up here. Now that said, uh, the reason I do so well over there is because I've been doing it a lot longer, right? So I'm just better at it. I've, I've just been doing it for, I've got the chops of somebody who's been doing it for 13 years versus someone who's been doing it for three. So that's going to, it's going to even out a little bit versus someone who's like, yeah, they're native and they're local and they're talking about those sorts of things, but they're not as good at the craft. Whereas you've got the opposite problem. You're really good at the craft and you're hopefully getting better and better, but you don't have that as much. So I think getting that perspective though, 
you can do just as well in a room. I was in a, in a, in a hall of 2,500 people and that was one of the few, few shows for which I was really nervous. Cause I'm like, I'm the only one doing it all, all in English. And I'm so American anyway. So yeah. for me to do just as well as people who are doing it in Hindi, that was a real breakthrough. And again, though, I think that comes back to the fact that stand-up was born in America and a lot of us have been doing it a long time. Sure. Sure. And have you found that experience? I mean, pretty much across the board in India, because I think that you toured pretty much you know, across multiple cities. I mean, you've gone to, from what I understand, Bihar pretty recently, um, you know, obviously Delhi, Bombay, uh, some of these other places. Um, do you find that it's pretty similar across the board there in terms of, you know, I'm sure that most of the comics would still be doing, you know, their stand up in combination of English either way, but just in terms of the audiences, um, whether you're in a place like Bihar versus Delhi versus Bombay, et cetera. It's going to be totally different. I mean, no matter where I go around the world, I'm going to do better in Sydney, Australia, than I'm going to do in Brisbane. I'm going to do better in Cape Town than I'm going to do in Durban. Why? Because by definition, you're landing there, you're a global voice, whether you could only have come from Cincinnati and gone to Durban, and you're still going to be a global voice to them, even though it's just international and not even really global. But yes, you're going to have your tier one cities like Bombay and New Delhi and Bangalore. And then outside of that, you're going to have tier two, which are going to be Hyderabad and some of the other Chennai and some of the other ones. And that's not insulting them in terms of tiers. It's more just the population and exposure to an international sort of things. And I think you probably get some notes right now from people in Hyderabad saying, hey, we're just as advanced as Bangalore. It's not a question of advance. It's a question of how much of that culture is westernized or Americanized. And that's not a good or a bad thing. It just is. So I think that's that aspect of it. When you go to Bihar and you perform in Patna, we performed Make China at War 2012 in front of probably 1,500 people, 1,200 people. Mm. And we got, it was one of our best shows. But I think what it showed us is how much of communication is nonverbal because we just did it really big and we smiled and we acted things out. And I think people are just amazed at like, what are they watching? They're not used to seeing somebody performing in a third language of English that they're probably not grabbing all of what you're saying or even most of what you're saying but you're big and you're doing this thing and it's just so different. They're used to maybe some mimicry, but mostly they, they see these huge productions. So probably the spectacle of, a, of just one person standing there thinking he can entertain 1,200 people just by talking, which is what is so weird about stand-up to begin with, I think that is probably what landed there. So I think, again, it drove home the idea that so much of communication is nonverbal. That's interesting. You know, and speaking of spectacles, um, a lot of your focus has been on politics. Um, and I think there's no bigger spectacle here right now, here in the US than what we're looking at in our political world. Um, and I think you've just are now almost at the end of your um, Man in the Middle tour. I think this has been something that you've launched earlier this year. Can you talk a little bit about that? And you know, I know you've probably for those that haven't heard you, you've always had a flavor of politics in your comedy and in your standup, but this seems to be kind of a very intentional specific tool just around politics where you're kind of taking shots at people on both sides and maybe speaking to a larger issue that we're having here in our political landscape here in the U S. Yeah, no, thanks. I mean, I, I launched this tour earlier this year in 2019 and I performed it on Capitol Hill, uh, with, with a, uh, former, uh, with a, with an HAF contact there with a big help there, Jake and Sarah. And we did a lot of stuff together. Also, I'm going to be touring this in 2020 as well. So I'm okay. taking this okay, to Skokie, great. Illinois, outside of Chicago on Friday, January 17th. 
get information at crajiv.com. But at any rate, I'm going to be setting up other dates and, and stuff like this in Ohio, et cetera. So the idea is really to try to bring people together. But it, it is hard because uh, not only do I do politics, but I do it in a clean way. So that's, that's also going to narrow you. I do family-friendly comedy that, that's uh, clean, but also then to do politics where people are generally pretty upset. So, And I am the man in the middle, but it's very important to understand that I'm trying to reconcile between liberals and conservatives and Republicans and Democrats. I'm not trying to reconcile between Trump supporters and, and Trump detractors because I make no bones about the fact that I do not like the president at all. And I think that people who support him are wrong. And so if you think that and you believe that, even though my dad voted for Trump and that's the beginning of the show that I talk about, <laughs> I think he's wrong. And I don't think there's any way for, especially an Indian person to support Trump, but tell that to his supporters because there are a number of them sure. out there. And one of the things that's happening, and I think you mentioned that I've been to Bihar, you probably listened to the podcast that Suhag uh, Shukla set me up with uh, Sham. With the Brown Pundits. And, you know, part of this is, this knee-jerk acceptance of any religion, whether it's Hinduism or Christianity or Islam, but a lot of a free pass is being given to Muslims when, you know, Bill Maher has been calling this out for years. You know, how are we pro-women and pro-gay? But then when it comes to Islam, we're like, well, it's part of their culture, so we're not going to say anything. So what's happening right now, even with Trump opening for Modi down in Howdy Modi and stuff like that, is Indians like to say, hey, we, we... we have a big spend. We spend a lot with advertising, et cetera. Now, though, in, in what I call Mipawi in uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, the election may come down to these three states again. And there are enough Indians there, critical mass-wise, that if Democrats are just giving a blind pass to Muslims, that a lot of Hindus may say, hey, you know what? We're voting Republican. And that's kind of what my dad did. And so yeah. it, it is a real point of caution to realize which party is doing more or less for us. But a knee-jerk acceptance or, or rejection of anything, whether it's Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, whatever, is a bad idea. And I think we have to be able to examine everybody equally and, and call, call balls and strikes, you know? You know, that's a great point. And I think, you know, from my perspective, I, I don't think in my observations, I would say that it's not, you know, that we are anti anybody, right? But I think, as you mentioned, you know, when certain issues play out in India, or other discussions are, you know, discussed or talked about, you know, in Hindu Muslim context, it always seems like nobody wants to hear the Hindu viewpoint on that, the Hindu perspective, like it's not a valid perspective. And that goes back to what you're saying that unquestioning not questioning the Muslim perspective. And that is just accepted. And I think we've seen that with how the issue of Kashmir, what's been happening in Kashmir in India the last several months has played out here. And I think it's caused a lot of disillusionment with the Hindu American community and the broader Indian American community that have traditionally all been Democrats. I mean, I think the number is like 79% are very, very high. Um, and the people that have been lifelong Democrats are just saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, okay, I understand, you know, some of these issues, There's, it's okay to express concern, like nothing is um, done perfectly here. But let's actually look at this in a more of a nuanced, balanced manner, but that's not happening. And it's been so one sided that I think it has turned around off a lot of people from the community. Um, and that's what I've seen. And I think that's maybe what you're alluding to and why people have been, you know, more supportive of Trump. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's exactly it is that that's the irony is that the Republican party conservatives tend to be more black and white and Democrats, liberal party tends to be more gray. And that's why a lot of time our, I'll say on this side of the fence, our marketing is harder. And I talk about this in the show, you know, it's just harder to 
purport a nuanced viewpoint rather than just saying I'm pro gun or I'm pro life or whatever. And you know, the the real solution lies in the middle there. And I'm not saying Democrats don't have their fair share of hypocrisy. I don't think as much as Republicans, and we could discuss that or not. But I think at the end of the day, I've always been in the middle. It's the you know, people say to me, Have you gone crazy? I go, No, the country went crazy. I've been standing right here. And the Democrats, as as much as we are supposed to be for a nuanced standpoint, that's what's been odd is this knee-jerk acceptance of any religion and not being more inquisitive, not sitting down. <laughs> inquisitive may not with religion. The inquisition yeah. was a bad thing. But, the, uh, but being more that we're more dissecting things, you know, and making sure that we're, we're looking at it, at it objectively. And that's the irony and, and the sad, potentially lost lost cause for Democrats if we don't turn this around. Sure. Well, wouldn't you say that you're actually probably more reflective, like you know, being in the middle is more reflective of the general American sentiment. I mean, I think obviously, you know, what we're seeing on both sides is the loudest voices that are dominating, you know, the political narratives, but that doesn't necessarily represent, you know, your average American that is either in the, even in the coast, um, you know, we always talk about the Midwest and rural America, but even on the coast, I think if you talk to people, a lot of times people are very much in the middle, right? You can't say that, oh, I am completely left on every single issue or completely right on any, every single issue. It's just much more complicated than that. It is. Chris Rock talked about that. He was just like, you know, on some things I'm conservative, on some things I'm liberal. He's like, you know, when it comes to crime, I'm conservative. Prostitution, I'm liberal. I'm sure this is going to get edited out. So. Yeah, that, we probably have to leave that out. But we could just say the part where Chris Rock talks about being conservative and liberal. That's most of it. You yeah. know, Walt Whitman, I'm large. I contain multitudes. I contradict myself, right? And I think those were the order in which he said those things. But the idea just being that we're people, we're human beings, and we are going to have different viewpoints. It is rare. Uh, actually, uh, my old roommate, Hassan Minhaj, his executive producer, we were Prashant. We were all out somewhere. Uh, and he asked a, a great question. You know, it was mostly people who were left to liberal in the room. And we'd all spent the night at this house. And in the morning, he just goes, look, I got, I got a question for you guys. On what are you a closet conservative? And it was such a great conversation starter, Samir, because it got people to open up. Yeah. These people who were Democrats and voting you know, for Obama and Clinton and people like that, there was someone in the room that was pro-life. There was someone who was pro-gun. There was someone who was you know, strong on family values, whatever that may or may not mean. There was a climate change, not denier, but doubter. There were people in that room that you went, wow, if you just heard these individual options, like, oh, so was it like a, a Republican meeting or CPAC or what was that? It's like, <laughs> no, because everybody's got something usually on which they're either, they're the other way on. They're liberal or they're conservative or they're more moderate. It's rare to meet a Ted Cruz who's just like movement conservative all the way down. And that, I mean, most of these people have flip-flopped and from one end to the other. So I do believe that 80%, I literally mean that 80% of the country is for things that are rare, safe, and legal. I, I think that when you see that with guns, when you see that with abortions, there are common sense solutions sure. that the vast majority of Americans would support. But you know, in this age of, uh, it's not about economics. It's not the economy, stupid. It's social and it's cultural. It's it's I'm on this team, you're on that team, and that's what it is. Yeah. And I think you know the fact that you know even it was framed in a way that closeted. What are you closet conservative on certain issues? Meaning we can't talk about it, right? I right. mean, you can't talk about hey that I may agree with some things. Even you know uh, if people may be vehemently against Trump, but you know even if he did something that maybe people see as positive, nobody's willing to go out and admit that publicly because of the shame or because they're going to just get ridiculed. Um, you know, and vice versa. If, as, as a Republican may see something that a liberal does that they like a policy, they're not going to talk about it. It, you know, in their circles either, because they're going to be slammed for it. 
And that's what I've tried to do so much. I've really tried to give Trump shout outs when he's done something right. I mean, both of the times. Um, it's, it's been really rare that he's done it. But like the example I give all the time is that I like the fact that he's standing up to China. I think it's great. I just think he's doing it wrong. Sure. I just think that you you get your allies together, you get the you get a team together and you isolate China. You don't just randomly throw tariffs and and then then have to bail out the farmers, which is socialism. That's the irony of the whole thing. So his strategy is just wrong. I, I like the idea of sitting down with a North Korean leader, but just giving away stuff and he just finding he's you know people are always well, it's novel right but he's just finding a new way to fail and in a way that anyone could have told you and my dad always used to say to me you know don't put your hand on a hot stove to prove that it was hot you know it's like we already know that if you want to learn something new by trying something new fine but don't prove something everybody already knows and it's almost like and this this is so sexist it's so sexist but it's almost like back in the day at least you know you'd have a, a girl sit down and watch football with you and she's like why don't they just run to the side and it's like that's been tried all right like that's that's the first thing that all these girls on watch football is why do they run this? Why do they run up the bill? Yeah, because that's never been tried, right? Like, we know because you got to follow the blockers, right? So, anyway, you're probably going to get excited. Yeah, that's going to get excited. You don't need women in this day and age, but girls back in the day. That was, that was it. Um, and I, as a father of two, I find that hilarious. As father of two girls, I should say. Run to the side. And that's what he's doing. He's like, why don't you just sit down and talk to Kim Jong un? It's like, you don't think they had already thought about that? I, I yeah. think it was Bill Clinton who said that at the center of every complex problem is a solution that is clear, simple, and wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious to find out if you have, now that you've been going to India for so long, have you been following politics in India? Um, and what are your views there? And maybe how you would look at politics there versus here in the U.S.? Um, obviously, you know, the scale um, and, you know, the messiness and the complexity of it is much larger or grander, if you might, may, but, um, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, what you've observed in politics or conversations you've had with people in India and also hear about Indian politics. Most of the people to whom I speak in India are comedians. And so comedians tend to be anti-establishment anyway, and they tend to be liberal. So most of them don't like Modi at all. But when I performed in Paris, a lot of them didn't like Macron either. So it's, it's, the usual thing to dislike who's in power, but especially if the person is conservative. That said, the other the other thing uh, with which I would preface this is it's not my country, right? So I was born in Ohio. I have Indian heritage. I'm Hindu. And I got that question, I think, down in Dallas at HAF, which was, are you more Indian or more Hindu? And somehow I've stuck the landing and I said, I'm more Hindu than Indian. It got this huge applause break. And <laughs> Suhat was like, what did you say? Like, how did, because I was there, but how did you put it? And I go, if I could recapture that moment, I would. I wish that we had that on tape. But I know that I said that my soul is Hindu and my body is Indian, right? So my eternal Atma and everything else that goes along with it is, is Hindu. So I'm more Hindu than I am Indian. But that said, I think I am aware of the fact that my nationality is American. And I get that sort of like uh, feeling when people comment, foreigners comment about American politics when they're here. I'm like, dude, you don't live, shut up. Like you don't live here, <laughs> yeah, right? So yeah. it's the, if I have that, then I could imagine that Indians in India are probably like, well, you shut up. Like you're an American, you don't get to vote here. You're an American citizen. So who cares what I think really? So I think I, I do have to preface it by saying that. Uh, that said, it, it, and then my own ignorance. I'm not trying to dodge the question as much as like, I don't know much, man. Like, I know that there's a Congress party. I know there's a BJ, BJP. I know that I know I've heard of all these different players that, that are over there. Um, but I don't know a ton about it. Um, 
there was an article that just came out in the New Yorker. I think it's like the blood and soil of Modi is India or something. It's a 62 minute article. I haven't read it yet. My brother sent it to me. It came up in my feed. I want to read it. My dad will talk about Indian politics because he grew up there and he was a poli-sci major and he watches a lot of these Indian channels. So I probably parrot back a lot of what he says, but that said, I do see, you know, when I was at the American embassy last year, I did call Modi and Trump fascists. I mean, I got written up in the paper for saying it. And people were just like, I did one gig and they were like, you can, you can be a little bit more open. I go, well, if you give, give a comedian that option, we're going to go all in. And what fascism is, is, is telling people what to believe. It's playing on nationalism, this nationalism dialed up to a 10. And it's telling people that the other is responsible for their problems. And so objectively speaking, it doesn't mean that there isn't any truth in communism, socialism, capitalism, fascism. Mm -hmm. There's some truth in each one of these things. But I think that the idea of we're seeing, we're seeing somebody saying it's okay to be Hindu and you don't have to apologize for being where you are on the caste. That is what Trump is doing here. It's okay to be white. It's okay to be male. And it is okay to be white. It is okay to be male. It is okay to be Hindu. It's okay to be those things. And that where we get the social cultural aspect of that team standing up and saying that people are saying, finally, we're tired of tiptoeing around Muslims. We're tired of tiptoeing around Muslims, both countries. So that's interesting. But you get this idea of demonizing the other if it's taken to an extreme. And so just like what's happening with Christianity in America, that's kind of what's happening with Hinduism in India. The big exception I will say to that is that at the end of the day, it's Hindustan, right? That's the only country where mm -hmm. Hinduism really has a foothold, whereas Christianity and Islam are all over the world. They're evangelical. They profess, uh, proselytize. I always say that word wrong. <laughs> and they, they have a foothold in so many countries. So with India, the big exception that I see is, gosh, man, if Hinduism is somehow diminished in India, then where is it going to exist? And sure. so that's where I'm a little bit more understanding of Modi's approach versus sure. Trump's. Sure. So that's interesting. So I want to, um, you know, maybe just flush that out a little bit because, you know, from my viewpoint, and obviously I work at the Hindu American Foundation. So, um, you know, I have to put that caveat in there. Sure. Um, but, you know, I think what I f feel is, has happened. And what a lot of people we uh, feel is that, you know, people are too much try too much have tried too hard to put this left, right paradigm that we see in the U S and juxtapose it on India where it's much more complex. Right. So if you look at even a person at Modi, you know, as you mentioned, fascists, right, right wing nationalists, but if you actually unpack his policies, he actually could be described as a socialist in terms of some of his economic policies, mm -hmm. um, what he's done in terms of, you know, bailouts for farmers, um, some of his infrastructure projects, his projects for women. And even, you know, the fact that he's actually, you know, unlike Trump is expanded the budget um, and, uh, you know, some of the monetary compensation for minorities in India and programs in India. And I think in India, you see a little bit of a reverse secularism to an extent, right, where there is not a clean separation of church and state in the truly Western American sense where, you know, entangle the two in India. It's more about, you know, we have you know, all minorities, we want to promote um, equality, but we also want to promote upliftment of minorities, which means that the government is going to get involved a lot more, um, which may mean we're going to have separate personal laws um, for minorities in India, for Muslims and Christians. And so I think even the definition of secularism in India is very different than it is here in, U in the U.S. And so I think when certain policies may be pursued, so for instance, um, there was this triple talaq, I don't know if you followed that, where basically there's 
instantaneous divorce in um, in amongst Muslims under Sharia law, and that was legal under Indian Muslim personal law in India ironically is not legal in many Muslim countries itself. But when Mm -hmm. Modi undid that, he was looked at as somebody that is taking away rights from Muslims. But if you really think about it, it's actually moving more towards secularism because you're Mm -hmm. trying to get one common way of having divorces in the country or trying to empower like women, right? Who are the victims of that mostly? It's Muslim women. Um, And so it's, it seems like, you know, everything that he does is still is interpreted as, okay, it's, it must be fascist. It must, must be anti-Muslim as opposed to looking at you know, the actual substance of his policies. Um, he actually passed a transgender protection law recently in India. Um, and you know, the, uh, criminal code that, uh, criminalized homosexuality in India was undone under his reign. So I think if you step back and actually look at some of what's happened beyond some of the rhetoric is very different from Trump, right? In terms of the rhetoric that he's uh, talks about, he's very inclusive in what he talks about trying to bring people together, inclusive growth for everybody. Um, And so I think, you know, my view is that it's hard to kind of put that left, right paradigm and kind of juxtapose on India and things are much more complex and different there. Plus there's a different history, right? If we say, okay, we're, we want the Hindu team here in, in India versus white team in the U S in India, there's a history where Hindus were actually, even though as a majority, they were subjugated by, True. you know, successive groups coming into the country, as opposed to here in the U S where whites have always been the dominant group in culture and have subjugated other groups. Um, so that's, that's kind of some of the dichotomies that I do see that are different, um, here in the, and in, 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 no, that, that is, those points are well taken to my, my third point about just not knowing a lot. So this is super educational for me. Hey, and then, you know, also I think, you know, when you compare, when one compares Trump and Modi, it's really insulting to Modi because he's a, he's a student of politics, right? Like he knows this stuff. Trump really doesn't know what he's doing. And there's, there's, he's, he is an uncle or a white guy or whatever you want to call it, just an old man who watched Fox news. And now he's running the country. That's exactly, he's that paradigm run, run amok. Mm -hmm. And Beyond that, I think you're seeing my own American lens. Yes, it's hard to apply that to India because you're going to miss so much of the other nuance that's going on. So, no, these are these are really good points, especially with the LGBTQ stuff and some of the other things that uh, he's done. So, some of it is just learning and, and just getting educated on some of the stuff he's doing. So, I mean, every leader has good and bad. I mean, sure. like we're saying, we're trying to find the good in Trump, and I'm sure you know Lincoln <laughs> has bad stuff too, although it's harder to find. But yeah, absolutely. Now, I, and what do you see? How do you see things playing out? Here? in the U.S.? I mean, we're coming up on 2020. Uh, elections are coming up. Yeah, actually, you're the first person to ask me that, especially in a, an official context. It's my favorite question to ask. I love talking about the future. And I, I know, well, again, sorry, caveat that by saying that I, this is not the official views of the Hindu American Foundation. So Sure. No, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm completely aware of to whom I'm speaking. And obviously, I've done a lot of work with, with HAF as well. So, uh, But, you know, the very first gig I did with HAF, I remember Suhag was a little bit like, well, a lot of what you said sort of flew in the face of what our messaging was, but that's okay. You know, and she said, look, I don't want you to change your act. But I mean, I just want you to understand some of the things we're trying to do. And then we continue to work together, you know, 15 more times. So it was fine. But and I think that's what's great about HAF and some of the work you're doing. It is you do believe in pluralism. It's yeah. all like, okay, these are the three points you need to hit in your speech. And unless you say these three things, or you don't say these three things, but like, just you can't speak for us. Like, I like the fact that we embrace diverse viewpoints, yeah. because that's an embodiment of what we do. So no, these are not the views necessarily of HAF, but my own personal view on it is, so to go back to it, I love the fact that you're asking this question. It's my favorite question to ask people, and I routinely get, I don't know, as, as a response, which of course nobody knows, but people 
even after a second or third time of drilling this down, it's hard to even get people to engage on this question. Whereas I do have a pretty pretty strong viewpoint on it. <laughs> that said, I, I was wrong about 2016. I did not think Trump would win all the way down to the end. Uh, most of us were wrong. But um, I, I fear and believe that he will be reelected. I think that the Democrats have a real opportunity right now with Mayor Pete because you've got somebody who's in the middle of the country. Yes, he's gay. That is not a strike as far as I'm concerned, but perception-wise sometimes you've got that, you've got he's young and you've got a small town. But you look at what he's, what he's saying, he's very moderate. He's trying to bring people together. It would be a first in terms of a, of a, a gay person, openly gay person as president. I think Stacey Abrams is the Democrats' ace in the hole. Mm. I think if Stacey Abrams, who has made herself available to be a VP, is paired up with a Mayor Pete, this is 400 electoral, uh, electoral votes. This is slam dunk. You can go to bed at 7 p.m. that night. It's over. It won't even be close. But I fear that we're going to probably put up somebody like Elizabeth Warren. Mm. And I like Elizabeth Warren, but she's too far left. And you're giving up a 23 or 24 point advantage on healthcare, which is why the Democrats, big reason why Democrats took over 2018, the House, et cetera. You're giving away your biggest advantage there. I like Elizabeth Warren, some of the stuff that she's saying, but I think sexism is going to play a role again as well. And I, yeah, maybe if she picks, and not to go identity politics here, but if she picked maybe an Andrew Gillum or a Cory Booker, mm-hmm. you, I think right now you almost certainly, if you're a Democrat, have to have a man and a woman and a person of color and somebody white. Mm-hmm. I think to leave out that sort of quadrant would, would probably sink you from a left standpoint. Mm-hmm. That said, Kamala Harris, I had this conversation with a 21-year-old white kid who just moved here from, from uh, Illinois. And it was so funny because we were talking at length about the race. And he was like, what do you think of Kamala? Because we're here in California, one of our senators. And I went on and on and on. And you know, I said, I think she might be a little bit too conservative for a lot of the left. She's a prosecutor. And I just remember what he said. He goes, she's a cop. I'm like, wow, you're right. She's a cop. That's exactly, yeah, that's part of the reason the left isn't going to get down with her. And then she dropped out. As an Indian, I just feel like she should have played up her Indian roots a little bit more. I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I think she only purported herself as someone who was black or half black or a person of color. And that's fine. But I think I was a little bit like, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of that, but no harm done to us because she wasn't really representing us anyway. Yeah. So the hell with her, I think, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but, you know, that's an interesting but, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but that's an interesting point no, that you no, no, raise no. is that, you know, do you feel that it, it, that she and obviously it, it's all a calculus, right? It's a political calculus that this is a political calculus that she made. And I'm sure other politicians are making that just the Indian American demographic right now is just not important enough for you can't even call it a block maybe, but the Indian American voters are just not that important enough to be a, to have to kind of play up certain things or to talk about certain issues. And I understand that I, I, as a marketer, as a person who worked in segmenting and all that stuff, I get it. But I think that what I just mentioned earlier about Hindus being enough of a, uh, of a population in, in uh, Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, it will make a difference. Yeah. And every vote, I wouldn't say every vote counts, but probably every hundred votes count or every 537 votes counted in Florida in 2000. So it is going to come down to those, those, those small margins, most likely. So yes, I think she probably did make that political calculation. I think furthermore, you know, there are people who could win the general but can't get through the primary, probably. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to see a Michael Bloomberg. I'm a centrist. Mm-hmm. I like Bloomberg. I think he's old. Uh, I think all these people over 70, I, just, I have my own point of view on, on 
well, I'll just say it. I didn't think they should just, okay, boomer, go away. <laughs> um, but they're not going to be here for the consequences of their decisions. And I just, I hang out with a lot of people who are over 70 because that's where my parents are. And they're great. And they, they should be on the earth, but they shouldn't be running the country. <laughs> and I understand that, you know, Jimmy Carter is 95. And so, yeah, then 71 to a 95-year-old isn't really, I get it. I understand that. that they have a long ways to go. But I just don't think if you're over 70, I think you should have to take a driving test every six months. But the AARP is the strongest lobby in Washington, so that's not going to happen. So <laughs> my point being, I probably just lost all the over 70 people, but too bad. Uh, so ultimately, though, I think you're going to see like a Bloomberg could win. Dulce could probably win the general. I think Andrew Yang could probably win the general. Uh, it would be so interesting if the Democrats put up someone like Dulce with Andrew Yang and just yeah. like something totally different probably would win. But I don't think that, and I'm biased towards Dulce because she was really nice to me at the HAF event <laughs> and she's been really great texting and whatever. So I like her a lot, uh, but I, I, I don't think she's going to get through the sure. primer. Sure. You know, that's interesting though. Um, just, it, it seems like, you know, you know, from our viewpoint, whether or not she moves forward, just the whole idea that, hey, a mainstream Hindu American candidate actually ran for president, it was a pretty big deal. But it really wasn't covered in that way. Um, do you kind of have any thoughts on maybe why that is? Or was it something that she didn't uh, play up enough? Uh, or do you think it was just, it wasn't felt that it was an important story coming from the media? Are there too many other candidates with their hats in the ring? Um, what do you attribute that to? I think you nailed a lot of it. I think all those things, maybe other things as well. I think there's a, there's a positive and negative aspect to this. The positives or the negative aspect is, yeah, it would have been great if she would have just come out and said I'm Hindu and would have gotten sort of that, that press or whatever else. Um, but she might've made the similar calculation that Kamala Harris made, which is, is this really going to help me? And also she's got a lot of unorthodox viewpoints. So to tie that in into an unorthodox religion, at least in the United States, that leads to the positive side of it. At least her attackers weren't like, well, she's Hindu and therefore get her out of here, right? Yeah. So we didn't face a lot of that discrimination that a Muslim person, again, we're talking about how some of the media, but the Democrats give Muslims a pass, but my gosh, I mean, I would never want to be quoted as saying that Muslims get a pass in America. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the way that I would frame it up at all. I think yeah. that they're very disadvantaged and underserved. So that's not at all what I would say. But I think it's good that at least you didn't see Fox News or some of the other people coming at her like, well, she's Hindu and she worships form goddesses. And you didn't see that sort of, at least I didn't see it in the mm -hmm. widespread, even YouTube comments, stuff like that. She's gotten, you know, Joe Rogan and, and some of the right-wing folks and some of the uh, Jimmy Dore and some of the people on the left even to, to endorse her or at least, you know, give her a platform mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So I think it's great to have different viewpoints. I don't know that I agree with her on everything she says, just like with most people, but sure. I think that it's great that she did act as a vehicle for Hindus in America. No, absolutely. Yeah, I think for um, a lot of, you know, hopefully, you know, for a lot of us that this is something that's unique now, but maybe in the next four to eight years or next couple election cycles, it'll be something that is just, okay, you know, that's cool. We have a Hindu there, but it's not really something that we're like, oh, wow, a Hindu is running for president. Um, so I think if we're going that trajectory, that direction, that's, you know, a positive stuff just in and of itself. It is a good, it's the eternal question with diversity. Do we play up the angle that we're all the same or do we play up the angle that we're all different? And there are two schools of thought in diversity and they're both they're both right, they're both wrong. They both have uh, positives and negatives to them. But Bernie Sanders is Jewish. We forget about that. Michael yeah. Bloomberg is Jewish. We forget about that. And it's probably good that that's not really a factor. And so, yeah, I'd like to see that. Some of the members of Congress that are Indian or Hindu running and and stuff like that and being sworn in on a, on a Gita. I mean, how dope would that be? Yeah. To, to see that happen as, you know, a president being able to do that. So I, I think those days are coming. I think that 
you know, people are saying, are we ready for a gay president and Mayor Pete? They're saying, well, maybe, maybe not, but we didn't, I didn't think we were ready for a black president. I, I was, but all the way down in, in 08, that's when I got wrong too. I did not think Obama was going to win despite all the polls. I thought white folks are going to go in there and just vote white. And to their credit, they didn't. A lot of white folks supported him. And, you know, I, I think with, with Trump as well, 63 million voters, I think it's like one out of seven or one out of nine voted for Obama and yeah. Trump. Yeah. And so it's difficult to just say, well, they're all racist. It's like, sure. well, no, they're obviously pretty bad racists if they voted for a black president twice. So I don't think it's just that simple to say. I think a lot of it is social and cultural and trying to hold on to your, your country. You know, just one quick thought I wanted to kind of close on here is that you mentioned, you know, the idea of like, you know, Republicans now saying that, hey, uh, we hate the government, et cetera, but then they're kind of reversing course when it suits them. But do you find that is the kind of a general theme in politics right now that what traditionally each of the parties have stood for or some of what they've talked about, they're kind of just throwing that out, right? I mean, when it comes to states' rights, um, you know, uh, that's been traditionally something that Republicans have touted because they want to, especially in the social cultural issues, control that. But now, you know, here in California, we're like, ah, we're not going to like listen to what the federal government is saying. We're not going to do anything like that. So then it comes back to, because we don't like the government there, then we're going to talk about states' rights here and California in particular in this instance. But do you see that in general, um, just across the board that just this kind of just getting away with, from maybe what the parties have traditionally stood for um, and where they've been in terms of what their main platform has been. Yeah. And that's the thing about holding on to your principles. You know, we talk about packing the Supreme court and Mayor Pete's talked about that and some other stuff. I mean, you know, it's, it's a war of escalation at that point. And I, there was, I think it was designated survivor, the show on which Cal Penn was appearing, you know, where the governor of Michigan is like, I'm not going to listen to the president. And, you know, at the end of the day, he is the president and it is the federal government. And, you know, I think it's fine if we, if, if uh, Californians say, well, we're going to continue to impose our high standards for vehicles because to drive a car in California, you have to do this. Okay, that's fine. That's our right to do that. But to create sanctuary cities or stuff like that, when it, when it flies in the face of federal law, um, I mean, I guess we did that with marijuana because it was legal here, but it was still if the feds caught you. And someone told me that. I was like, that, that can't be true. But no, that was true. If the feds caught you, you were busted, but the state police let you off. And I hadn't really ever thought about that. But I, we got to hold on to our principles, right? I mean, you still have to operate within the bounds of what, if you don't believe in states' rights as that kind of a thing, then that's what the Republicans have done, right? They're like, they were all pro, pro free trade and now they're anti that and they were pro you know, all, all the other things, uh, tariffs and whatever else that they've totally flip-flopped on. Um, I think if we do that, yeah, maybe it's asymmetrical warfare, but I don't know, man, isn't this the story in the Mahabharata and the Ramayana and it's good versus evil. And, you know, there's, at what point do you go kill the other side? It's like, well, there's a lot of killing in all the epic books. It's just what's right and what's wrong and, and fighting your principles. And I think to, to abandon those principles though is, you know, then, then you've really lost, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, I think we're all, this is all Maya anyways, right? So we're all All right. Well, Rajiv, you know, we're coming to the end of our time here, but I just wanted to give you the opportunity if you have any final words or anything that you wanted to add um, or anything you want to plug, um, plug away. 
Well, thanks, man. Thanks, Samir, for having me on. And thanks to HAF, the Hindu American Foundation, for all the support over the years. I know I'm super opinionated. I, uh, in my real life, I'm very opinionated on social media, a little bit less so, and then on, on stage, even less so, because I try to include people who are in the room. And on, on social media, especially with podcasts, people can just turn it off. Like, this guy's an idiot, and they, they, they stop it. But I appreciate the platform to be able to talk about what I want to talk about. Uh, you're, you ask really great questions. It's been good to talk to you. I know we've become friends over the years anyway out here in California with uh, with HAF. And I just want to really thank uh, the Hindu American uh, Foundation as well as the Hindu American Society at large and Hindus around the world for all the support that they've given me. And hopefully we'll head back to India again soon. I was just there a couple weeks ago and you know, I uh, hope to continue to advocate for some of the things that we're doing. And you can always find me at funnyindian.com, at funnyindian really on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. And drop me a line. I'll, I'll get back to you. Maybe not the same day, but I'll eventually get back to you. And Appreciate all the support and love and uh, namaste. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please email sohindu at hafsite.org. Thanks again for listening.